Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Lady Locavores is a group that celebrates women in the Atlanta local food movement through community farmers markets. Later this hour, we'll preview their upcoming event at Wild Heaven Brewery in West End. Plus, cellist and composer O'Corey Johnson, also known as OK Cello, guides us through his latest studio album, Beacon. First, an outrageously funny new book with adult content and saucy language. Leave it to John Waters to make the protagonist of his first novel, Someone Dogs and Children Hate and Whose Own Family Wants Her Dead. She's known as Liarmouth, which is also the title of this hilarious new book. John Waters joins me now via Zoom. So delighted to talk with you again. Well, thank you so much for having me. Now, your protagonist has a great name. What made you call her Marcia Sprinkle? You know, I don't know where names come from. I hear people's names. I read them. I have baby books that I use first names for. Where Sprinkles came from, I don't know. But whenever I'm writing anything, the very first thing I do is come up with their names. It's really, really important to me. Now, every once in a while, I'll hear somebody, I know someone that knows somebody whose name is Hat Backwards. And I said, that's his name? And he said, yeah, so I have a character in the book called Shirt Backwards that can't talk right because he always wears his shirt backwards. So once in a while, it's something you hear that gets (laughs) exaggerated and changed around and turned into something else. But real life inspires me, certainly. Oh, well, Marcia Sprinkle suits her very well. She certainly sprinkles her own brand of conniving and thievery and je ne sais quoi throughout the story. Yeah, her unpleasantness, her unpleasantness. But to her, all her acts are pleasant. I mean, she's called liar mouth later, and that is an erotic thing to her. But in the beginning, lying for her makes her feel prettier. It makes her feel powerful, and it makes her not hurt from all the things that have happened to her in her life, imagined and unimagined. Indeed. She uses her sex appeal to punish, chooses to live in foreclosed McMansions, and likes using gasoline because she's harnessing energy, baiting the environment. How would you further describe Marcia, John? Well, that nature even hates her. One time she opens her mouth and a large horse fly flies in it and chokes her. Um, dogs <laughs> instinctively hate her. As soon as a dog sees her, he hates her. And she's had a bad life with dogs. And so it's only natural that the one insane man that makes her tell the truth is a dog catcher in reverse. And I'm not going to give away the plot. No, please don't. There's much too much to savor for the reader to be. Would you talk about Marsha's take on people who stand to the left rather than the right (laughs) on escalators? 
Well, she thinks that, you know, you should know that in an airport, the people, the people that stand on the right are losers, undecided voters, people that have no confidence in their own opinions. And she believes that they should always move aside. All society should move aside for Marcia to get through because she knows exactly what she wants. Let's talk about how Marcia supports herself. What is her occupation, so to speak? Thief. But what she likes to do is steal luggage in airports because it's easy. It used to be hard when they check your tags. For some reason, they don't anymore. So she goes to airports and there's every possible way you can commit a crime in an airport is in this book, I think. Some of it comes from just watching people. Some of it is common sense. I have a friend that used to steal the flight attendant's purse on every flight. And it's always in the same space, that first bin, the little bin when you walk in. So they should really move it. They should put it somewhere else because word of mouth is out (laughs) in the suitcase thief community, that that's where you get it. The word suitcase will always have added meaning for me now, thanks to your writing. (laughs) For those who haven't yet read the book, would you elaborate on suitcase? Suitcase is a term that I heard in Baltimore. Somebody said, I have a suitcase against that person. I said, what? What did you say? They said a suitcase. And then I realized they meant it's a lawsuit and a case against somebody. But if it's fraudulent, they say, I got a suitcase. And I love the expression. And I, it took me a while to understand what it meant. But it just means you've got a lawsuit against somebody that is fraudulent, but that you're going to do it. Everybody knows. And it's in Baltimore, if you see a bus crash, everybody runs and jumps on the bus and holds their neck. For the insurance person to come. <laughs> the entire population. Everyone knows that. That's a, a common thing that happens in Baltimore. Who is Daryl? Well, Daryl is somebody, just a guy, that realizes he gets turned on by stealing. And then he meets his match, Marcia, because she steals from him. So they have this erotic thing with each other. And then he becomes her slave. He works for her. And his salary is he can have sex with her once a year. <laughs> But Marsha is no man's used up calendar, as she puts it. So on the day that he is supposed to collect the year anniversary, she ditches him and everything goes wrong in the airport when they're stealing suitcases. And then the road trip begins. She is fiercely intelligent. And you give her some poetic reflections. I especially appreciate her assessment of someone who dared try to kidnap her, and I'm quoting you here, even though she is blinded by the sudden sunlight, she can still see his big ignorant head like a moron moon in the middle of a solar eclipse of stupidity. (laughs) Yeah, well, she's judgmental, all right. Let's put it that way. How did you come up with that simile? How long did that take you? I don't know. I just write in the morning. That's my job. I get out of bed. I read seven newspapers, drink five cups of tea, and go in that room and pick up my Bic pen and my yellow legal pads, and I just start at 8.01 every day. And that's my job to think up that stuff. So if I, the main person I'm trying to make me laugh is myself. And once in a while I do, and then I know I've gotten a really good joke if I can laugh out loud when I read it back. Do you have a copy of Liar Mouth nearby? Yep. Would you read page 48, paragraph one? This is after Marsha thinks to herself, fashion doesn't come easy when you're on the run. Marsha looks through a couple of trash cans and finds an old wig. God knows it's probably infested with lice, but once she shakes them out, she realizes they're dead, so technically it's safe to wear. Fashion doesn't come easy when you're on the run. As she slips it on, she sees it's at least her own color, brown, and the shoulder-length chatel style favored by married Orthodox Jewish women who cover their own hair for religious reasons is one she's never been photographed in by the authorities. Had a hooker wig snatcher been loose in a Hasidic neighborhood where the style is still seen? Only in Baltimore. Only in Baltimore. Baltimore remains your muse, though there are other places we visit in Liarmouth vividly described. Why does Baltimore 
continue to provide you inspiration? Because everybody that lives here has a sense of humor about themselves and they can make fun of their city first, but you can't. I think it's where my real friends live. Everybody I know here isn't in show business. I don't trust people that don't have old friends because old friends last longer than family. Mm -hmm. I think that gives me a feeling of safety to live here, even in a city that isn't so safe. Wow. Though she thinks babies are satanic, her word, not mine. (laughs) Marsha has a daughter. Would you tell us about Poppy? Well, Marcia regrets childbirth heavily, and she lives to make her daughter miserable. She's really happy to be a bad mother because she thinks that her daughter shouldn't have been born when she didn't ask for it. But Poppy tries. She really is a good person, and she ran a trampoline park, and there was a horrible accident there, and she got sued. And so she and her followers, who are radical trampoline enthusiasts, have to go on the run. But they're so obsessed by movement and trampoline that they have to have a car that has no shock absorbers. They have to keep going upward at all times. They bounce in place and it gets crazier and crazier and they they become a minority that's on the run and and other people start bouncing with them. And it becomes an insane physical fitness movement that really isn't impossible. It could happen. If you look it up, I know people that are addicted to bike riding. I know people that are addicted to running. It does set off certain things in your body that are addictive, like cocaine. So to them, the movement of up and down is something they have to do every day, which is something that a human being does not do naturally. How much research did you have to do about the radical trampoline movement you you depict here? Well, I went to a trampoline park and it wasn't open. The woman let me in and I walked around. She probably, if it had been open, they would have thought I was an insurance adjuster or something. (laughs) I read about a lot of trampoline accidents. I read about, you can look up bouncing and all this kind of thing and shaking. There are people that believe in this and I just exaggerated the truth. But I did learn different trampoline movements and different the names of different moves you can make on trampolines and what a trampoline does to you. And I I always thought trampoline looks like fun, but not as much fun as they're having with it because they take it to such limits that at the end they're 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 on the run, bouncing up and down the East Coast, trying not to be noticed. And you have added to our ever-expanding English language, because when they're bullied and ridiculed, you use the word bouncist. There are bouncist people, yes. That's people that hate people that bounce. And and, and they... Wait, inspire- outside of this book, there is such a thing? Yes. Oh, well... I don't know that there is. (laughs) I'm sure anything you can think of, there is it in real life. Definitely. I learned that a long time ago. But I have not found yet in my research, I did not find uh, a hate group against trampoline people. No. Okay. Well, you got to read the book to appreciate all facets of this movement. So we've met Poppy and... Her po- and her followers, her, her followers, her followers because, indeed. Yeah. And her grandmother, Marcia's mother, has the name Adora, which made me think a little bit of Endora. Did you have Bewitched on your mind? No, I didn't actually. I mean, I don't know that show that well at all. Adora was just, I have a baby book I looked through from the 50s and it was name in there. If you look through it, you see practically every name in all my movies, everything. I love names. They're very important. And Adora was, I thought, a good name for a grandmother that runs a facelift place for pets. And, and, you know, I don't think that's too far beyond either. It is an exaggeration. I mean, she goes really far and and her pet is a is really a cat trapped in the wrong body and she tries to realize that and deal with that in the community she lives on the upper east side although well as she said sort of the upper east side. <laughs> not too far up and yeah. not too far west she lives on the second floor in the east 60s <laughs> a few blocks over Would it be a spoiler if I mentioned the celebrity that Adora's dog resembles? No, you can say it. There's a couple of them. Which one? 
Joan Rivers? Oh, yeah, Joan wouldn't mind, because I know her. She was always great to me, and she insulted so many people. I just said the dog had that same look that she specializes in, <laughs> that wind tunnel look. Okay. A reader can further appreciate your vast repertoire of film knowledge when you make references to Die, Die, My Darling, and Tippi Hedren in The Birds. How important is the horror genre to you? Well, I think in my book, there's lots of jokes that are have references that nobody's going to get them all. But there's one in the next sentence. So if you don't get it, it still doesn't slow the book down. I mean, I even say some, some characters says Hallelujah to the Hills. That's an obscure Jonas Mikas movie. How many readers do I really expect to know that? Some of mine will. And the ones that do will feel extra happy that they get that joke. But I think all references in, in my books are about things I love or I specialize in that have specialized knowledge. And I think, it, I always think my fans are really smart. I never explain a joke to anybody. And if they don't get it, look it up. And then you learn something. That's what you're supposed to learn when you read. This is true. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis, and my guest is the one and only John Waters. We've been discussing his new novel, Liar Mouth, a feel-bad romance. About three-quarters of the way in, we learn that there is actually a sad, yet of course, outrageously hilarious backstory <laughs> to Marcia's evil. What happens when she meets Lester? She meets Lester and he steals from her. So for once, somebody does something to her. She has met her match and he forces her to tell the truth. And once she tells the truth, she begins to open up erotically because she's never told the truth and lying was sexual to her. And he teaches her sex through something that I'm not even sure is real through ear entry, which I have a book that someone gave me called Ear Masturbation. I have no idea if it's supposed to be true or funny or anything, but I had never heard of that. So that is Marsha's entry level into sexuality because she hates sex. And more than that, she hates defecating. She hates anything with the natural body. She says she has no smell. She doesn't smell like anything. And that's the way it should be. And so she has to learn how to be a little bit human. And I think he teaches her that because he had a similar hideous backstory about what happened to him when he was young. And he confides in her. And he calls her liar mouth, which to her is talking dirty in the best possible way. No one has ever called her that. And that turns her on. And once she's turned on, she is willing to go to the next level of kind of sexuality that no one else has ever seen or may ever want to do with someone that is her match. And to together, they become a power couple that wants to reinvent the whole concept of owning a pet in Provincetown. And there is quite a finale that takes place there in an erotic celebration like no other. Oh, and I must say, <laughs> Provincetown, no doubt, will be giving John Waters tours out of Liarmouth now, don't you think? Well, who knows? I Maybe he'll never be allowed in there. I know the town's <laughs> fire. What's he going to think? I do have a great signing in a great clothing store there called MAP that I do every year. And it's really one of the best ones in the country. So who knows? We'll see what Provincetown thinks of this book. I don't know, because the whole last finale takes place there. Well, you mentioned that book, yeah. that slim volume on ear masturbation in your acknowledgments, I noticed. After you thank Jonathan Glassy. You have one of the most respected literary editors in the business. Yes, I do. Yeah, and Farrar Strauss-Giroux is not exactly a trashy 
house. No. I love this, Jonathan. Well, they've been, they've done my last three books and, and Jonathan's been my editor for all of them. He's a good writer, a poet. He's a great writer. And he laughed all through it. When I turned it in, I thought, what is he going to think? He was going to say, really enjoying it, laughing out loud. He, you know, he totally did not question. He understands the humor. And Jonathan is, is the kind of person that he isn't offended by it, but he gets it. And we, we edited the book together. Certainly he gave me good suggestions and everything, but we talked about which things can you get away with, which is funny and which, and that's a line today in humor that is ill-defined totally, but he was wonderful to work with. I've, he's edited uh, Role Models, Carsick, uh, Mr. Know-It-All, and this one. So yes, I'm just lined right up there with Susan Sontag. Right I'm telling <laughs> you. I mean, talk about a Hall of Fame. And I think there is something very endearing about that. I also wondered if you felt somewhat bemused because part of what you loved so much in your filmmaking was being the outsider and being outrageous. Does this make you feel mainstream? No, but I, I've addressed that in the past that when I was young, no one wanted to be an outsider. So I did. Now, everybody, I would imagine both Trump and Obama call themselves outsiders. So I wanted to be an insider, the thing nobody wants to be. And I ended up weirdly being sometimes an insider and being accepted by the very organizations that were hated me the most in the beginning. And I feel great about that. I'm honored with no irony at all, really. I don't, I'm not like Janis Joplin going back to her high school reunion to go, nah, 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 nah. I just think it's great that I haven't really changed that much. This book is not much different from the outrageousness of Pink Flamingos in a way, but everybody else, American humor has gone so far in a different direction that it is now accepted as kind of just American humor is dark humor, what they call, used to call sick humor or I don't know, on black humor, meaning black novels, not, not racially, just being dark in spirit. But I actually think mine are joyously obscene and joyously perverted. And I'm asking everybody to come along for the ride. And it might not be your world you want to live in, but if you come with me, I'll be a good, a good uh, guide and I'll take you through it and protect you and you'll have fun. Well, and you're talking about to your point about the zeitgeist, you are inclusive in your satire. I mean, there is no room for cancel culture here. Everybody is fair game, but there's a certain, I don't know, sweetness about it. I agree. I don't think it's mean-spirited. Even, even though Marsha does so many mean things, the way it's written, hopefully is for humor, is so that you're astounded by her behavior. It's so terrible, but you laugh because it's so politically incorrect. Well, it's not even politically incorrect. No one you know is that bad, really. <laughs> that, that is that screwed up in a way that feels that she is absolutely right and not one thing is wrong. I know a few people that are a little like that, but not so much as Marsha. Marsha is never is incredibly confident and just thinks no one has the right to make eye contact with her. And she's quite happy that way. She's not lonely one bit. No, but wow. In the end, the warrior goddess of hate has finally found love. Now I realize the tagline, a feel-bad romance, but I felt good about that. Well, I agree. Feeling bad and feeling good is always in my, my work interchangeable. And it does have a surprise ending in a way. And it leaves it open, weirdly, to a sequel. Who knows how she will react from that day on? John, would you kindly read one more portion of the book. Absolutely. Your picks, the greatest hits. Beginning on page 216. Dog owners are still screaming in panic as their former pets maul them out front of Lester's doghouse headquarters. Some angry, indoctrinated mongrels have already escaped into town, leaving their stunned, bleeding jailers in shock, foolishly calling out the ridiculous pet names that these animals will never answer to again. The days of anybody giving them orders has come to an end. Sit, you. No human command will halt this canine insurrection, that's for sure. 
Luster takes Marsha's hand and they walk out into this new world and see firsthand the carnage his re-education of dogs has ignited. Marsha, like all converts, is filled with zeal and she accepts the fact that violence such as this is in order if the dramatic truth between master and man's best friend is ever to be exposed. Maybe dog owners will now take responsibility, Lester barks with authority. Leash laws, he scoffs. Put them on a leash and see how they like it. Dog parks, ha, did anybody ask the canines if they'd like to go there and do what? Pose for selfies with two-legged freaks? Climb over man-made obstacle courses that even the worst miniature golf course down Cape would reject? Walk in germ-filled stagnant splash pools and call it swimming? Dogs want to bury their own he continues ranting, not have human beings pick it up. Bravo. I did do the whole audio book. Thank you. So the audio book is coming out. Oh, my God. When you read your own book out loud, it sounds even more hideous and obscene when you read it out loud. And I always look over at the poor people that are working in the studio, <laughs> their face when I'm reading some of this. It's, it's kind of liberating. But did you laugh out loud at your own writing? No, sometimes I didn't, but when I read it out loud, I, I'm laughing at just the expression of the technicians that are working there, their face that have no idea what they're doing. Well, you know, they haven't read it or anything. They're just listening to this for the first time for days of this recording. It. It's kind of fun. And then afterwards, they all seem they all seem to laugh. They all seem to be in good spirits. I must say that at one point, Marsha says to herself something about think Meryl Streep was an actress, there should be an Oscar for lying because Marsha would get it. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, there every, every career, even criminal ones, needs award shows. <laughs> Filmmaker, writer, actor, and artist John Waters. More information about his novel Liar Mouth, A Feel Bad Romance, is on our website, wabe.org. A reminder that this novel has adult content and some saucy language. In a moment, O'Corey Johnson, also known as O.K. Cello, will tell us the story behind his latest studio album, Beacon. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. A beacon lights up the darkness, offering direction and guidance. Perhaps the same can be said of Beacon, the latest studio album by cellist and composer Corey Johnson, who goes by OK Cello. When the virtuoso joined me via Zoom in November, he first explained the significance of the album's title, Beacon. Beacon is actually the name of a song. So the album is named from a song that is particularly special for me. It is one, my attempt to kind of channel Miles Davis, really the kind of exploratory, honest, emotional, experimental jazz that um, I think he's just really amazing for pioneering. But it also is this idea that music and that art in particular has the capacity 
to travel into the future. Um, it has the capacity to connect with our future selves and perhaps cement connections between the person we want to be and the person we are right now. And the idea behind Beacon is that it's essentially a love letter that I'm writing to the future Corey that I'd like to be. And I've got this dream that somehow he is out there listening to Beacon or picking up the album or going to his playlist and remembering when that song was written, remembering when I kind of endowed that song with these intentions and cementing the connection that I'm likely to be him. I hope it's a, a model for how maybe we can even all use the song as a way of imagining who we want to be, imagining the world that we want to live in, and more important, imagining that that world remembers us. Oh my, all kinds of cosmic things going on here. Yeah. Ambitious. <laughs> Ambitious and, and hopeful, very yeah, hopeful. Sure. Very hopeful. In your song, like to sing to music, you and your oldest daughter mm -hmm. are having a conversation on Zoom. Mm -hmm. What do we hear you discussing? You know, I decided for the first time to include interludes that tell a little bit more about my life and my artistry. Uh, and that was the first interlude. And um, what is interesting about that is that my daughter and I actually talk a lot about music. We talk about all kinds of artists, the music that she's listening to, the music that I'm listening to. But I'm realizing that we don't actually talk about my music all that much. I know that she likes my music and she comes to my concerts, but I'm not necessarily on her top playlist. And I, I just wanted to have a conversation about, you know, what would put me on her playlist. And it, more than anything, it was just supposed to be fun and trying to, me, me creating a situation where I can get her laughing and joking. Yeah, yep. Okay, so like, um, let me ask you a question. Do you listen to my music? Um, not if I'm not around you. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I watch your Instagram videos. You watch my Instagram videos? But... Yeah. So, so what, what would I need to do to, to, to play music that you would be listening to? What would need to be in my music? Um, uh, I don't know. Like, I like to sing to music. Ah, uh, you need some words. I think that's always, like, why I like, because I like to sing. And I like melodies, and I do like your melodies, but I like to sing to melodies, so I feel like that's... But it was, it was an interesting interlude because the song afterwards I end up you know, singing a little bit on. And it's not because of that interlude. It's just there's one of the few songs where I sing a little bit. But it was a, it was a great, for me, kind of intergenerational um, look into my art and my life. You know, what it's like to be a dad and an artist. And, and no matter, you know, how ambitious you are or how um, maybe even successful you are, at the end of the day, like, you're still somebody's dad, and they're still like, mm, no, dad, I'm not singing on your album. I don't care how cool you are. <laughs> <laughs> but, Arcaria, was it a surprise to you when she said she likes to sing to music? I mean, here you have what is undoubtedly the most soulful sounding of all instruments in cello, but... Yeah, you don't sing. And uh, I guess she doesn't think, at least now, in the conventional sense, that your cello sings. Was that a revelation? Uh, no, I mean, I think to some degree I was aware of her relationship to instrumental music prior to this. But what was fun about that interlude was just exploring what it is she likes about music and what it is I do. And in spite of the fact that, you know, she likes my melodies, but I don't really have many words in my songs. She's listened to the album, she's listened to that song, and she kind of connects with it. I think there's a fun uh, little tongue-in-cheek irony that the song directly following her, yeah, but your music doesn't have words, has some words in it. Not that I'm a great singer. <laughs> I'm very comfortable being a cellist. But, you know, I think the album, in addition to being about hope for me, is also about uh, stretching and growing. I don't know, I thought that that song, that interlude in general, was an opportunity for me to kind of grow a little bit and share a little bit more of myself as a father and just as a person with my audience. So. Also sweet that ultimately 
when she says she loves your melodies, she is acknowledging that your cello sings, just not with the words she's used to. <laughs> Who knows what happens in the future? But yes, you know, for right now, I think I will be very comfortable with the fact that my cello sings and she does like those melodies. So. I like when you talked about, imagine a fantasy league of song production. Right. You know, that's kind of fun. Uh, you know, actually, I do that from time to time. When It's interesting. I've got a particularly narrow niche of performance when it comes to what I do. But every once in a while, I'm like, "Ooh, I'd love to have that producer produce a track for me. Or uh, I think it would be really cool to have that mixing engineer. Speaking of which, Martin Kearns and my best friend Julian Tillery are kind of responsible for the sound on the album. Julian Tillery, some months back, did an initial mix, but Martin Kearns did the final mix and mastering for this album, and I'm just so happy with what he did. So I did get a little bit of a Fantasy League a song production experience with this album. So I just wanted to shout him out and, and say thank you. I just love the music nerds in us thinking that there can be a Fantasy League of song <laughs> production. <laughs> You know, wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, who needs football? You don't get concussions <laughs> this way. Yeah, this would be a good draw. You're looking at all the producers, all of the mixing engineers, all of the percussionists, all of the instrumentalists and vocalists and putting together your fantasy band. Lois, I don't know, maybe did we just stumble onto something? Did we just stumble onto our retirement so. uh, fun there? Maybe you and I should put that together. No kidding. It's a corrective for head injuries. You know, it's just all healthy and good and wonderful self-expression. I love that. I love that. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with a Corey Johnson, also known as OK Cello. His third studio album, Beacon, is out now. This is a departure from your previous albums, which featured mostly cello and sound looping. Would you talk a bit more about why you wanted to include spoken word and singing on this album? You know, uh... I'm not sure that we talk about it so much, but my previous life, or I would say really a concurrent life, was as an English teacher. And uh, when you come to my shows, that's perhaps something that you see. My show is certainly musical, and there's a lot of looping, there's a lot of improvising, but there's a lot of storytelling. And in addition to there being a certain amount of storytelling, I, I think there's kind of like a lot of intellectual exploration. It's kind of like being in a classroom in all the great ways. I love the classroom. I think it's one of the most beautiful places anyway. But I have a strong relationship to language as well. And the cello is one of those things that kind of gets me out of my head and gets me out of my mouth, right? And I love that. But I also enjoy when the two are able to join forces. And uh, in particular, there's this song, this, this song on the album called Your Hand, which is a poem about love that I was really moved and inspired to write recently. There's definitely a subject of that poem. And... Uh, and in many ways, that poem and that partnership between words and music is what I hope to some degree there's more of a future for, for me. I really enjoyed being part of the Emory Arts and Social Justice Fellows that happened in 2020. Uh, and the yield of that project was that I not only was in the classroom working with grad students, not only was I hoping to distill their conversations into something that was meaningful and artistic, but I got a chance to write poetry. I got a chance to write poetry, which, you know, I used to do quite a bit, especially as an English teacher and as a writer. And then I got a chance to compose music to that poetry. And it was probably the first time in my adult professional and artistic career when I think I was asked to be all of the things that I am. And it was really special to me. So in that way, I think I'm going to take moments to explore that when I can, especially on my own projects. So I think there will be more language and cello. It will always be more cello than anything else. But I do think that I will use language in this moment to support, augment, amplify what I think oftentimes my cello is trying to get me to say. Let's talk about these are the days. Mm. I didn't think you were old enough to recall <laughs> 
All in the Family, the hit TV show from the 70s with Norman Lear produced. I take it you watched it in reruns. Probably I watched it in syndication. So I'm 46, turning 47, and would have been a, a, a very small child in the 70s when it was on yeah. broadcast air. But I definitely watched it in syndication the same way I watched Sanford and Son and the Jeffersons. And, you know, I definitely got a heavy dose of what was the popular 70s sitcom uh, TV. Mm-hmm. But I, I really love that melody. I think it's a, I think it's a really beautiful pentatonic major scale that, that is used wonderfully. But more exciting for me is that the show was such a brilliant piece of satire, right? And just the way in which we were invited to recognize, but also be critical of Archie Bunker and his disinterest in staying with the times. You know, he was racist, he was homophobic, he was sexist. And and the show used his stubbornness as a way to kind of illustrate how the world was changing and how those of us who cared to change with it needed to do so because we were going to be left behind. And that satire, that message starts from the very first moments of that song. Da 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 da. And you know, just the 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 notes of guys with guys, girls with girls. We need a man like Hoover again. <laughs> People like us, we had it made. You know, it had something to that line. You know, it's it's a problematic melody in 2021. You know what I mean? It's a problematic song. And as a black man who's very aware of the fact that I'm black and very conscious and progressive in my values and my politics, who's worked in DEI, it's complicated for me to go around singing Those Were the Days, right? West African in so many ways in which the Great American Songbook is inspired by jazz, which is essentially black people, Africans in this country, translating these kind of centuries old cultural and artistic instincts through a new world situation and and, and schema and drama where they find themselves using European instruments and for the most part having to translate these instincts into a modernity that is complicated and painful and difficult and marginalizing. So the Great American Songbook is full of such really beautiful, rich pentatonic melodies, polyrhythmic syncopation that that is just so rich with West Africa, right? But we don't think of it that way. Yeah, and yet also, I guess, uh, not too far removed from West Africa, I felt like you had a Caribbean vibe going on Mm. in that. Certainly. So, so what I love about the world that I create is I, I kind of, the, the goal for the song is for me to create a new world for that old melody. And that new world is also an old world that is this Afro-Caribbean world. I mean, I think Cuban is kind of how I feel of it, feel about it a little bit. Maybe even there are some kind of like English speaking Caribbean elements in it. But yes, and then I love at the end when in that new world, we get a chance to take that melody from All in the Family and to drop it in. But we've dropped it into a new world with a new sister melody whose lyrics are, these are the days. Yeah, you put a positive spin on that sentimentality or false nostalgia. (laughs) I tried to. I tried to give myself every reason to sing that melody. If you've heard the new song, then you understand what I'm singing. So that's that's the goal. yes. In Thumbs Up, we hear a sweet duet with you and your youngest daughter. I understand this was the first time you two had recorded a song together. How long has she been playing piano? You know, she's been playing piano for a couple of years. She's been working with um, a couple of really great pianists in town, Tammy Harper and Nick Rosen. And she likes to read a little bit more than she likes to improvise. But, you know, for the purposes of recording for the album, I didn't really want to do a contemporary popular piece because I would have to get a license for it. So, you know, I was trying to get her to like improvise a little bit and she was like, I don't know if I want to improvise. And so we, we <laughs> kind of stumbled onto something that I think she was at least open to. But what was fun about that is that like, I really just hope it's a, a precious precedent. Mm-hmm. 
know, my daughter's she's 14 now. She was 14 at the time. She's 15 now. And um, I intend to keep doing this as long as I'm alive. I really hope that we'll look back from our fourth or fifth recording together at this first one and laugh. You know, laugh at the music or the composition or laugh at, you know, how many times she closed the piano because she was anxious or nervous or laugh at just the natural organic punchline of, you know, they can't hear your thumbs up and her response of thumbs up. I, it, I don't know. I just, I, I, I hope the audience enjoys it. Oh, yeah. But it's a special little Very snapshot for me of this moment in time for me and my daughter who is really interested in becoming like an audio engineer and a video editor and she's recording her friends and she's learning the piano and playing guitar and ukulele and wow you know it's a new thing that you know we kind of have in common she doesn't talk too much about the fact that we have it in common we just kind of like walk past each other and nod and listen to what the other person is doing but it is a really special moment for me mm. This is the first album you have released with ZMI Records. Please mm. tell us how you found that company. Yeah, it's a great story. So um, Ross Rossen is an amazing, I think he calls it hyperrealism portrait artist here in Atlanta. He's internationally known and celebrated. And um, through uh, Carlton Mackey and the work of the Center for Ethics at Emory, I was invited to be part of a show um, maybe four or five years ago with Andy Young, Ross Rawson, Center for Ethics and Emory, and this conversation about becoming human. That was the title of the show. And it was a look at his really big, beautiful portraits that are just insanely realistic. They look like photographs, but they're, you know, the size of like 15 feet by 15 feet. And uh, I was invited to play Liminal and then um, Stephen, uh, Tavara Stevens, uh, an improvisational poet, and colleague of mine, he and I put together a piece that was kind of like the soundtrack for the event. Well, it turns out that they're doing a documentary on Ross and the executive producer of the documentary is a gentleman named Chad Hagen. And uh, Ross invited Tavares and me to contribute some music to the documentary. So we went out to his house, we saw the new pieces that he was working on. You know, he's done stuff of like Desmond Bishop Tutu, of Morgan Freeman, Maya Angelou, um, just really, really beautiful, larger than life pieces. And so we got a chance to go into a studio and brainstorm and also play a little bit. You know, Tavares and I played. But then after, you know, the meeting was over and we were packing up, I was talking about my solo work and Chad Hagen, the executive producer for that documentary was also there. And he was just kind of intrigued by my music and intrigued by what I was attempting to do as a solo artist. And we started having conversations about, you know, possibly releasing the third album. And uh, he got pretty excited about doing it. And, you know, over time, one thing led to another and here we are. And uh, so it's my first label released project and I'm really appreciative of the, of the support. You know, I did all the recording for the most part on my own, but they helped with the mixing and the mastering and the distribution and the promotion. So uh, it's, it's really wonderful to have some support and uh, I'm excited about the partnership going forward. Cellist and composer Corey Johnson, also known as OK Cello. His third studio album, Beacon, is out now. More information is on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, the story behind Community Farmers Market's annual Lady Locavores event, Amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Community Farmers Markets has restarted their annual Lady Locavores event with an extended celebration this year. City Lights producer Summer Evans has more. It's been two years since Atlanta female chefs bartenders, and farmers gathered for the annual Lady Locavores event. Now, Community Farmers Markets has rebirthed their signature event with a two-month-long celebration. K-12 
Katie Hayes, founding executive director of CFM, created this event with her team eight years ago in order to elevate and celebrate women in the food industry. We didn't feel like they were being recognized or elevated enough in the space. There's tons of women in kitchens professionally and behind the scenes, and there's tons of women farmers and food makers. In fact, like over 70% of the vendors at our outdoor farmers markets are women or women-owned businesses. One of the new components created for this celebration is the Lady Locavores at Home. Women in the community are encouraged to host small gatherings at their homes and have meaningful conversations around what local food means to them. On International Women's Day, they held an award ceremony honoring women chefs, farmers, and artisans in Atlanta. The final event of this year's Lady Locavores is this Friday at Wild Heaven Brewery. Of all the work that these women have done over the past two years is just incredible. And, you know, give everyone a chance to just to celebrate that and have fun and just show what amazing work women in Atlanta are doing around local food. Katie Hayes, founder of Lady Locavore, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the new immersive theater experience Cassie's Ballad, coming to the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.